an inside joke because I have no rhythm whatsoever so I could play that to make a racket that's about it all righty <clears throat> I'm gonna pray real quick for myself and I, I, I am super wrapped up in this message so uh, I hope that I'm able to do it the way that the Lord uh, would have me to let's pray father in heaven we just ask you to help us now I know it's not about what I say, it's about what you say. And so I'm submitting my mouth, uh, my mind, uh, my body. That which you have blessed me with all, I say they're mine, but I, I submit them to you, Lord. And I ask you to help me now. As we look at this text, deeper, I guarantee you, definitely deeper than I have ever looked at it before. And that probably means it's deeper than any of us have ever looked at it before. And so I ask you, Lord, to speak into our hearts now, not what I would say, not what that anyone gathered here would say, but what you would say. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is the question that plagued my mind as I looked at this text. Uh, after I looked at these, it's just three verses. After I looked at these three verses, and I thought, man, why, why are these verses powerful? What is nagging at me? What's getting my attention about these three verses? And I, I began to ask myself these questions. Do God's people love God more than anything else? Now, obviously, the answer is supposed to be yes. But I'm not stupid. I see what the world is doing. I see what the so-called church is doing. I see what even we have done at times. And so I ask myself, do God's people love God more than anything else? Where is the ruthlessness toward the true enemies of God? And we, we have not people as our enemies or, or even governments or, or law or politicians. Those are not our enemies. Our enemies are demons, evil spirits. Um, where is the true ruthlessness of God toward, toward his enemies? Where is our ruthlessness toward the enemies of God? Where is the blind faith that we are accused of? You do understand that if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you have told people that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then those who are lost in the world look at you and go, but why? Why would you sacrifice your time? Why would you sacrifice your money? Why would you go and serve? Why would you show up every Sunday faithfully for worship? Why? What is this blind faith that they accuse us of, and where is it in us? And where is the great joy? that scripture talks about will be present in every believer that transcends every difficulty and every struggle. Where is the great joy that it talks about? Now, I've seen all of these things that I'm asking you where they are. I want to know where are they today? And so this is the text. And on first glance, you will say, how do the questions connect? But you will see it before we are through. Okay. So grab your Bibles if you would. Maybe you say amen with me. Maybe you just give a little hoot, a hollow, or an exasperated breath even as we turn to Joshua chapter 12, verse 1. Woo! Amen. Thank you very much. This marks that moment at which we now set our side, ourselves aside, our distractions, our temptations. What you thought you were going to hear about today, you now set aside and you let the Lord speak out of his word. 
Joshua chapter 12, verse 1, simply says this. And at first it looks like a summary. Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And so after we've read the text, I will put up a map. In fact, I'm going to mess with the PowerPoint runner. Who's running the PowerPoints back there? Let's go to the map now, please. It's going to be the last thing in the PowerPoint. And it's going to mess up as I'm reading the text, but I want to show them the map real quick. Okay. Now these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, meaning to the east, from the valley of the <coughs> Arnon as far as Mount Hermon and all the Arabah to the east. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and ruled from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, both the middle of the valley and the half of Gilead, even as far as the brook Jabbok and the border of the sons of Ammon, and the Arabah as far as the Sea of Chinneroth toward the east, and as far as the Sea of the Arabah, even the Salt Sea, and eastward toward Beth Jeshemoth, and on the south of the foots of the Slope of Pisgah. Now, this is the land, the map, and I know you can't see all the little dots, and that's okay. Um, what we're talking about is the areas that Joshua's managed to conquer. This is only the beginning of the summary. We're only getting through verse 3. It continues in verse 4, but we're only reading through verse 3 today. And so the lands that will be first addressed are sort of down and to your right. Okay? And so if you'll notice down on the very bottom of the screen, hopefully you can see it. If you can't, I'm telling you it's there. There's a thing that says Arabah, and it kind of goes like this, like a, an ark. And then there's Edom, and then there's Moab, and then it starts the tribe of Reuben, and so on. And these, are the, these names represent the tribes and the half-tribes of the Israelites. And these are the lands that Joshua will command. And so throughout the remainder of chapter 12, and it kind of goes on from there, but you'll see them getting possession of the lands. But what's mentioned here is a king called Sihon, okay? And he ruled from a city uh, called Heshbon, and it's in that little area down there uh, just north of Moab that's now controlled by Reuben, okay? And that's, what, that's really all you need to know geographically speaking. Now, go back, PowerPoint people, Go back because uh, while I'm talking about this, I want you to understand that we what we just read did that kind of go like this to you, like all those geographical locations and names and try. I didn't I didn't get it either, right? I'm gonna like what? Who's all that? I got that Sion was the king of the Amorites and he lived in a city called Heshbon. That's pretty easy. It's right in the middle. I got that. The rest of these I'll kind of just fly by. They're names of places and I kind of showed you geographically where they are. But here's what's interesting: when the Israelites read this text, that doesn't happen. We are now, <clears throat> we are now a couple thousand, nearly three <laughs> years later. And so when we talk about it, some of these cities don't even exist anymore. They're lost in the annals of history. It means we don't know exactly where they were. So that flies by us like it's nothing. But when they read this, this account is extremely familiar to them. And I'm going to show you how we know it's extremely familiar. If you're following along in your Bible, you can flip back to Numbers chapter 21. I'm also going to put it up on the screen for you if we've done all this correctly electronically today. Numbers chapter 21, and I'm going to be re begin reading in verse 21. So this is 21:21. Okay. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Remember him? He's the one that we actually did pick out of that text, verse 2, Joshua chapter 12. They sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from the wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. 
But Sion would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sion gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the sons of Ammon, for the borders of the sons of Ammon was Jazer or Jazer. Israel took all of these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites and Heshbon in all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former kings of Moab and had taken all of his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. So this is the first really big people, if you will, this Sihon was king of the Amorites, and they had taken all the lands of Moab. And so when Israel comes in, they're just going to go on the road, and they say, just let us go on the road. We won't invade your lands, we won't drink your water, we won't eat your food. All right? And there's a little bit more detail that we'll see in a second. But they're just going to pass through. Sihon says no. Comes out with this huge army against the Israelites, and basically uh, they, give him, they give him a whooping. They wipe them out. They destroy all of them. In 27 it says, this is still in... Uh, 2127, therefore those who use Proverbs say, so this is a sort of a song or a, a, a pithy quote, a, pat, a power-packed quote about Sihon and, and Heshbon. Okay? Come to Heshbon, that was Sihon's city. Come to Heshbon. Let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon, that's the king, it devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab, Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sion. So this is a song that was well known in the region. Proverbially, they used it as a teaching. It had power-packed teaching in it about the, the Amorites conquering Moab. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Debon. Then we have laid waste even to Nophah, which reaches to Medabah. And so the Israelites are saying at the end of the song, the song ends this way. Well, we whooped them. We killed them all. We took all their cities. That was it. They were huge. And everybody was flocking there because everybody saw how huge and powerful they were. So goes the song. But listen to the end of the song. Okay? And that's in Numbers chapter 21. Again, I say to you that this is a well-known event. This happened in their lifetime. A lot of times we want to think about these events that happened on the other side of the river as if they were a whole lifetime different, but it wasn't. This was their lifetime. Moses was still with them. Moses sent the letter and asked for them to be allowed to pass. And the king of Sion says no. And Moses and the Israelites go out and they destroy him utterly, even though everyone around recognized him as all the power, dominant, getting all the attention, and was flocking to Neshbon, his kingdom, to do anything they could to help him and his people because they were so dominant. <clears throat> they knew this well. You remember that right before they begin their invasion of the Promised Land, they had a huge worship service. We talked about this a few weeks back. And at that huge worship service, something was read so that everybody could hear it. Do you remember what it was? It was all the words of Moses. Everything that Moses had ever spoken. All the people gathered here, everything that Moses had ever spoken. So now, they were present. Some of them had served in the army that had conquered the king of Sihon. So this event is fresh in their memories. You don't soon forget a battle where you cut down the entire enemy army. People come home from war and they go, hey, you know, uh, I, I was forced to kill somebody in war. Or I was forced to kill 10 men in war. 
the Israelites killed dozens. Then you don't come home from that and soon forget. It doesn't matter if you're ready to go into another war or not. You remember what you did back then. This is a fresh event for them. Then they go to a worship service where the entire event is told. And when the, entire, uh, when the entirety of what Moses was supposedly said, all the things that he said, was read to them, this was read. Now flipping your Bibles back to, this is our last text of the day, Deuteronomy chapter 2. Okay? And again, I'm putting it up on the screen, I hope. And this is what Moses said in his final speech to the Israelites before he died. And it was reread at that worship service before they begin their conquest of the promised land. Okay? And this is what he wrote. So I sent messengers, this is the first person from Moses, I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. You will sell me food for money so that I may eat, and give me water for money so that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. Just as the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did for me, until I cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. Now, we've been talking about, if you relate this back to last week's sermon, if you've been following up, if you're, if you're making the connection, when the Lord hardens the heart of the enemy, what is the purpose of that? So that the enemy will rear up and the, the, the friends of God will crush them. And so that's what happened. God hardened the heart of Sihon, the king, and he raises his army up and the Israelites crush them and take those lands and those cities. And so there's something to be said there about how you can, you can move past an enemy that is God's enemy, and then when they get in your way and they try to stop you, you crush them. But you can move past them, and you may not even realize who they are or what their intentions are. But be sure, if God wants you to crush them, then God will give them that hardened heart so that they will rise up. I mean, we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're not talking about people here. We're not boxers, right? We're not warriors in the army or in the military of any version, Marines, Navy, whatever, we are soldiers in the kingdom of God. So we're talking about evil spirits. So you may have an evil spirit that's in your life that's sort of laying low, and you can do what it is that you're supposed to be doing, and he doesn't mess with you. But he's gaining strength all the while, and someday he may become that enemy that gets in the way, and you may have to run roughshod over top of him and defeat him, as Moses did with Sion, because God hardened his heart, and he brought them out. Notice when he hardens the heart and brings them all out, all the enemies of God come into one place, and they are crushed. We talked about that before as well. Just a few verses left. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sion and his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. Then Sihon with all his people came out to meet us in the battle at Jahaz. The Lord our God delivered him over to us. Again, who gets the glory? God does. Who gets the credit? God does. And we defeated him with his sons and all his people. So we captured all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivor. We took only the animals as our booty and the spoil of the cities which we had captured. So this was an account that they were intimately familiar with because not only did they live through it, fight as part of it, but on top of that, it's just been read back to them from the speech of Moses. So they've heard it multiple, multiple times, even memorized it in some cases, okay? There may be one more text. I said that was the last one, but there will be one more. Okay. So there's a few things I want you to see in here 
that I really feel like the Lord pressed on me really powerfully over the last several days. The first one is, I want you to see that there were songs sung about their victories. Sihon and his soldiers, Heshbon, the city, they were the great shining star. They were everybody's salvation. They were everybody's attraction. Everybody was bringing money and gifts to Sihon because he was the great king. He was the one. They were, the one, they were dedicating themselves to Sihon, the king of Heshbon. Songs were being sung about the great victories of Sihon. And so the Israelites coming in and conquering them could be for a variety of reasons. It could have been about vengeance because what they did to the Moabites, it wasn't right. But our judgment isn't a ready motivator. We can't move in and conquer the enemy out of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It could be about justice because what they did was wrong. It often appears as chastisement. Think about how the people of Heshbon were going, oh man, we must have overstepped during the war. We must have done things wrong. If we'd have been faithful, if we'd have been right, our gods would not allow this to happen to us, etc. Right? It could have been about justice, but no. It could have been preventative. Remember, we looked at the verses from Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, and we talked about how when an evil spirit goes out of a man, it gathers seven more wicked than himself, comes back and takes up residence. And we said one of the primary reasons to do that, or maybe the only reason that they do that, is to secure a future victory. So they were cast out once before, and now they come back with seven more. They're safe. Yeah, let's, get, let's see you get rid of all of us, right? And so that could have been the reason, but it wasn't. It's not preventing future later loss that, they, that the Israelites did this because wherever the borders of the promised land are, whenever it settles, if it settles where God says it settles, there's still going to be enemies outside those borders, you see? So if they'd have cut Moab off, they didn't add that to the promised land to cut this area off, there still would have been enemies there. And if they add it to the promised land, there's still be enemies just beyond there. There's always going to be enemies. So we don't defeat our enemies to ensure that we get greater success in the future or a more stable future. Rather, the motivation for conquering those who have songs sung about them is simply obedience. As I said, in our stride, we overcome the enemies of God. In our stride, we overcome our enemies. Jesus made this clear when in the New Testament he said, they, they were not more wicked who were buried under the tower that collapsed, the Tower of Siloam, or whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. But then he said, but unless you too shall repent, you likewise will die. See, we're no better than these very enemies. We like to think that. We think, I'm better than a demon. I'm better than an evil spirit because they're evil. In your flesh, you are no better than they are. You're rebellious against God. You're arrogant to God. You're disrespectful to God. You do what you want, not what God wants you to do. Well, what do they do? What makes them so bad? Same. Same. They do it a different way. But Tim does it a different way than I do. When I'm in my flesh, Tony does it a different way. So we're all just as bad as they are. So we don't conquer the enemies of God because we're better inherently the enemies of God. We conquer the enemies of God in obedience to God. We do what God would have us to do. And then if God brings them a hard spirit so they stand up against us, then we run roughshod over top of them and destroy them. Those verses, by the way, come from Luke chapter 13, verse 4. There were songs sung about our greatest enemies right before we ran roughshod over top of them and destroyed them. There were songs sung about their greatest enemies right before they went right over top of them and destroyed them. That's not to be missed. That is an implication of the story of this sto that they knew well. 
They understood that the great king of Eshbon, Sihon, in fact, later when you see the people in the promised land fearing them, one of the things they keep saying is, we know, we heard about how you ran over top of Sihon. Because everyone in the region is singing about his glory. I want you to think about popular culture today. And how people are all about social media and TV and, and sports and violent activities. People are into all of these different things. That they're not, these things are not God. They're of creation. And not all of them are sin. But when you're worshiping that, you're not worshiping the person that you're supposed to be worshiping, the being that you're supposed to be worshiping, which is God and God alone. But who's rallying to the great success of, insert whatever football team this weekend? How many tens of thousands of people will flock and drive and navigate through? Now, I'm not preaching against football. There's absolutely nothing about football that's wrong. People who play football could be wrong. People who come to church to be wrong. See, we're no better than any of that. The question is not, what about that? The question is, what about this? Where is the love of God? That's the question. Why don't God's people love God more than they love anything else? I submit to you that they do. I'm asking you, where is that at today? The second thing I want you to see out of these texts that we just read then is that the songs that we sing then are to be properly targeted. So our greatest words of praise, our greatest attempts to honor someone or something should be aimed at God. Distractions, they are dangerous. We need to get used to seeing distractions to what we're supposed to be doing. Remember, we run roughshod over the enemy in our actions of obedience. This is when we conquer our greatest enemies. When God raises them up before us and then we go, oh, there was a bump. Because we just ran over Satan's best scheme to ruin our life. This is when we do it. When we are being obedient to God and moving forward. So I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I know exactly what God wants me to do. I'm going to do it. And then here throws the enemy the biggest road bump. And we're like, oh, that barely slowed me down. Years ago, that had stopped me in my tracks. I'd have been all fretting about it for a day or two. Then it would have happened. And then I'd have been, oh man, my life is this is a horrible day. And I'm all swimming under it. And then the day after, I'd be going like, oh man, I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired. I barely can survive because yesterday was such a hard day. No. The victories of God are not like that. It's because we're distracted and that's dangerous or because we're complaining against the Lord and that's dangerous or because we're finding fault with the plan of the Lord and that's dangerous. Well, well how do I know these things? So I just made some broad sweeping statements that it's dangerous to, find, to see distractions, it's dangerous to complain against the Lord's plan, and it's dangerous to find fault with the plan. Well, I know that the same way that they knew that because not only is this story very familiar to them, another one is. Israel asked Edom the same question that they asked of King Sihon. They asked the nation of Edom to let them pass. They said, can we go through your area? Can we just stay to the road, not eat your food or water? Edom said no. Israel was rebuffed. And they began to go around the land of Edom. And as they went around the land of Edom, they began to complain against God. And they paid very dearly. And God took that opportunity to point to Christ of all things. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4 to 9. This happens just before what we already read. So this is under the leadership of Moses before the beginning of taking the promised land, as they are coming out of the wilderness. Numbers 21, 4-9, and these words were read at that great worship service before they began to take the promised land. It says this, Then they set out from Mount Hor, H-O-R, by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. 
and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. See, there was food. It was the manna that God was giving them. That didn't stop until after they, were some, after they were in the promised land a little bit. We saw that way earlier in the book of Joshua. There was food, but it was the food that God provided. So they were railing against the sustenance that God was providing, saying it's miserable. Where we are today, what I'm going through today... Now, all of a sudden, I'm not pleased. I'm miserable. I'm sad. I'm disjointed. I'm disconnected. I don't agree. I don't like this plan, God. That's what they were doing. They even loathed the food that God had They began to hate the situation that they were in. And it says this, The Lord sent fiery serpents amongst the people, and they bit the people, the serpents bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. It doesn't say that they got sick and almost died. It says many of them who complained, who were distracted, who were disoriented by their circumstances rather than just being obedient to God, they died. They died. They died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. That word fiery there means having the color of bronze or copper. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man... When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. You see, they were complaining about the way that God was taking them, the way things were going on the journey that God was taking them on. And God said, oh, you got a problem with this? And now let me put in subtext for you. If you got a problem with this, then you're going to have a problem with the way of salvation that I'm going to make for you. Now bring that forward to 2019. If you got a problem with the way things are going right now, assuming that you're obedient and you're pushing forward for the Lord, if not, the problem is probably you, not God. But assuming that you're obedient pushing forward, Lord, if you've got a problem with the way it's going right now, then you're going to have a problem, a real problem, when Jesus comes again and says, leave behind everything that you love, everything that you want, everything that you've experienced, all the dreams that you have, leave behind all that and come a better place with me. So God said, all right, well, if they'll look to the way that I make, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense, if they'll look to the way that I make, even though they were complaining and grumbling and distracted, then I'll save them once more. I'll save them from dying. And so they made a bronze serpent and lifted it up. If people were dying from the snakes, then they looked toward the serpent and they lived. If they refused to look toward the serpent, they still died. But if they looked toward the serpent, they lived. That's what it says. And then when Nicodemus in the New Testament comes to Jesus and he says, how, how can this be? Nicodemus is baffled. And Jesus says in John 3.14, right before, a couple verses before that famous John 3.16 and 17 that we know so well, in 3.14 he says, but the Son of Man must be lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness. See, he uses this event to point to his being the way. And if you will look to Jesus, you will be saved. And if you will not, you will not. That's it. And so people are now refusing to look to Jesus. And I submit to you that that alone makes distractions very dangerous. It makes complaining against the Lord very dangerous. It makes finding fault with the plan very dangerous. Because if you are distracted or complaining or finding fault, you are not looking toward Jesus. You are looking at the circumstances that are before you and the problems that they are. And you're going, well, I'm busy looking at these circumstances or problems. I can't be busied by Jesus right now. 
And I submit to you, if that's your circumstances, then when Jesus comes again and he says, hey, Whitney, now's the time. Gotta go right now. Bus is leaving. Are you coming? And you're going to be busy going, but my bill's not paid. Or, but my health is not right. Or my relationship's falling apart. Let me just get this. There's got to be something. God, fix my marriage. Fix my child. Fix my health. If you'll do that, then I'll put my eyes back on you. And nothing. Because he only asks once. And then he's gone. These, these temptations, these distractions, these complaining, this finding of fault is very, very dangerous because our eyes are not fixed on Jesus while we're doing that. The songs that we sing, and if I may, to use the King James word, our conversation, meaning our life, our living, our choices, everything, must be affixed on Jesus. Ah, the story of the bronze serpent has a bad middle. <laughs> you know, eventually, you know what they do? They begin to worship the bronze serpent as a god, and it has to be destroyed. Now, it's a while after this, so they get saved from the snakes and they go in the promised land. But this is all in the lifetime of these people that are taking over the promised land. Why do they need to be consecrated? Why do they need to be circumcised? Because, frankly, they're idiots. And guess what? So are a lot of Christians who are living their lives today. And instead of being focused on Jesus and living for Jesus and obediently running for the Lord and thereby running right over top of the greatest enemies that you will ever face, spiritual demons, evil spirits, temptations, distractions, etc., Instead of that, we're busy wallowing around in self-pity over the situations that we face. This is God's plan. And there's no room. There's no room to be distracted. There's no room to be complaining. There's no room to be finding fault. Our songs must be directed toward the Lord of heaven. There's a third thing. This one's the hardest of all. You thought that one was tough. <laughs> that one hit me like a, a ton of bricks. You thought that one was tough. Watch this. Do you believe that the future victories of God will be great victories? Do you believe that? Do you believe the future victories of God will be great victories? In order for a victory to be great, what must it be? Well, first of all, it has to be a victory over some kind of an opponent, right? If you go into a boxing match against Papa Smurf and you win, that's no victory. That's like you just kicked, you punted him out of the ring. Nobody cares. Like they go, Timmy kicks Papa Smurf out of the ring and next thing they'll put a big giant gold belt on and pay him a million bucks and the rest of the, he's got to walk around every time he's on TV like this. I kick Papa Smurf out of the ring. No, that's nothing. To be a great victory, you have to have a great opponent. Wait, you said the, the future victories of God will be great victories. In order for the future victories of God to be great victories, then there must be great opponents, Correct. For God to crush and for God's people to crush. And so this is the truth. Future victories of the Lord over mighty enemies need mighty enemies that are persisting or even arising today. You follow? The victories that we have over great enemies of God tomorrow require great enemies of God in the making today. If we defeat all the great enemies of God in the making today, if we defeat all of the enemies of God and there's no one rising up, there's no one becoming stronger, then tomorrow there will be no one strong for God to defeat and get the glory. You follow? Future victories for the Lord over mighty enemies need mighty enemies persisting or even arising today. Death has been defeated, but it will be finally swallowed up in victory in the rest that yet comes. Sin is defeated, but death and Hades, which the Bible, when the Bible says Hades, sometimes it's translated hell, and I kind of don't know which I like better, but the bottom line is it's talking about the evil power that, are, that wants to reach up 
into your house and into your life and into your family and grab a hold of your loved ones and drag them down to the pits of hell. That's what we're talking about. And so, though sin is defeated, death and Hades will once and for all go into the lake of fire. On a smaller scale, demons and evil spirits have their time now, but when believers get busy serving, loving, advancing the kingdom, these demons and evil spirits, they will fall and their songs will be forgotten or they'll be repurposed to glorify the Creator and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the day in which we are supposed to be living. Let me say it again. Demons and evil spirits have their time now, but when believers get busy serving, loving, and advancing the kingdom, they will fall and their songs will be forgotten or repurposed to glorify the Creator and His Son, Jesus Christ. Even physical sufferings, trials and tribulations, the kind of things that we face. James 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face all manner of trials and tribulations. Right? And you do, right? Even trials and tribulations. In John 9, it says that... Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, well, neither. It was so that God could get the glory. The great difficulties of this life have a purpose. The physical sufferings, trials, and tribulations that we endure, they have a purpose. Future victories for the Lord over mighty enemies need mighty enemies persisting or even arising and becoming stronger today. And already... Already, Aaron, we come to our conclusion. If these, th- if these three things hold true, then we must link them together and live today. We must live today. Today we are just weak enough for our weaknesses to allow God to work through us. He is made strong through our weaknesses. And we are just strong enough. Turn it down. Just very softly. Thank you. He is made strong in our weakness. And we are just strong enough for in our victories, the great serpent who is the devil falls from the heavens. That's what Jesus said. When the disciples came back after casting out demons, evil spirits, doing healing, things like that, after that happened, Jesus said, I saw the great serpent who is the devil falling from the heavens. And as stupid as those men were, and as ignorant and untrained as they were, but they had been with Jesus. And when they met people, people said, they've been with Jesus. Clearly they've been with Jesus. That's the problem. And and the devil was falling from the heavens. And in our weakness, he is made strong. And in our strength, we find the strength to do what God would want us to do, to be victorious over even the devil himself. The song that's playing behind me, it's a song called Glory Days. It's been much discussion ever since it came out. Basically, the premise of the song is how people will always look back to how awesome they were in high school or their strength of their youth and like that, and they mourn for the loss of the days that have gone by. And oftentimes, they get stuck there mourning for the loss of the days that have gone by. And if you go online and you read the the conversation that's been going on for roughly 20 years uh, about this song, you'll find that people think that's the truth of it. The lost people of the world saying, yeah, I was a great football star and I've never had a good day like that ever again. I I scored a touchdown in the last three seconds. I ran the football all the way back or I I, I hit a home run in the ninth inning with two outs and brought the game home for the team. I took this beautiful girl to prom. I used to be that beautiful girl. They're all trying to live in the glory days looking at the past and that's what they're talking about you can read it for yourself if you want online that's what they're talking about as you read the song that's not even what the song is about 
when he wrote the song, he said, yeah, we're all looking back to the glory days. But if you watch the video, which is not showing on the screen for some reason, if you watch the video, you see that there's a guy who's reliving his glory days, pitching for a great baseball team when he was in high school, and he's all, he was all that in a bag of chips in high school, and supposedly he's mourning the loss of those days. And in the end, that's him. Right there. And in the end of the song, he's out pitching to his son, who's hitting every one of those pitches. He said in high school, he used to throw the ball, and nobody could hit him. And now he's out pitching to his son, who's maybe 9 or 10 years old, and his son hits the ball every time. Now, maybe he's not trying to throw a curveball or a screwball or make his son not hit the ball. But the point is, as he's walking away, he said, who taught you to hit like that? And it's clear that they are enjoying their day together. The song is about the fact that we are so busy mourning the loss of those glory days that we're not living in the present. And people are filled with regret, and regret is not a thing we do. Christians don't regret. There's no sense in regretting because you can't change the past. And by the way, we also don't worry about the future. There are texts in the Bible teaching us not to do both of those things. Why? Because the greatest enemies that you've already come, songs were sung about them. And you can get wrapped up in the songs. You can say, man, age. Age has sapped my strength and I've lost everything great that I ever had. I've lost my glory days. No, you haven't. These are your glory days. That's the point of the song. That's the point of the text. That's the point of the sermon. Trust God for the victories of today. Obediently follow the Lord. Godly methods and disciplines living to capture today for God. Celebrate Him in the apparent losses. Remember it said, Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you encounter all manners of trials and tribulation. Because any apparent victory for today, if it seems like the enemy is winning today, you have to realize it's only in preparation for a greater victory of the Lord tomorrow. You get it? If you suffer today, it is so that God can get greater glory tomorrow. Why would you cry about that? Don't you love the Lord? If you are struggling today, it is so that God can get greater glory tomorrow when he destroys the enemy that has risen up against you. That's why you consider it pure joy whenever trials and tribulations arise. You say, oh, my car is broken down. Oh, I don't have enough money. Oh, my relationship is struggling. Oh, I didn't really do anything. I'm just serving the Lord, being obedient. But man, my life seems to suck. But these are my glory days. Praise the Lord, because I see in the offing a great victory of God. Oh, now I think I know. Now I have the answer. Do you have the answer? Well, the answer is to the question, do God's people love God more than anything else? Those who are really God's people do love Him more than anything else. And they're living their glory days right now as they serve God and obediently run roughshod over the enemies of God. Jesus said it this way. He said, these things, meaning all the teachings that I have taught you, I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. That means a peace of knowing that everything's going to be okay. A peace of knowing that you're taken care of, you know who you trust, and he's not going to lose it. 
a peace of knowing that this trial lasts for a limited period of time. Even if you should die at the end of it, you'll go immediately to heaven. If this particular trial kills you, you will go immediately to heaven. Do not pass hell. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And right along with it, in the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Do God's people love God more than anything else? You better. Where's the blind faith we are accused of? It better start showing up. Where's the ruthlessness against, against God's real enemies that we are accused of? It better start showing up. Where's the joy of God's victories? The author of Hebrews said it this way, but he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, this is talking about Jesus, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time, onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, those who are set apart, those who are different, those who have come to Jesus. I added that. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them, he then says. And so after he said that, he said this, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, if you can come into the presence of God by Jesus' blood, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, Jesus' flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. These are the glory days. Get living. These are the glory days. Become ruthless. If God hardens the heart of an evil spirit or a demon or a temptation or a trial or a tribulation to come up against you, then you run right over top of it and crush it as God's people should and do what it is that God is leading you to do. Share the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Love others. Serve and be merciful. If they would abuse you, let them abuse you because that abuse will be testimony to a greater victory of the Lord in the future when there will be no more abuse. When you face trials and, and, and difficulties, tribulations and temptations and distractions, realize those things are dangerous, but they are dangerous only in and of if you take your eyes off of Jesus. Distract me all you want, but if my eyes are on Jesus, I shall not miss the mark when the time comes. And great joy I have to know in whom I have placed my trust to know where my faith is, to where my eyes are. Yes, I play games. Yes, I work a job. Yes, I haul in a paycheck. Yes, I pay bills. Yes, I am concerned and I take myself or my children to the doctor when they are sick. Yes, I take care of my responsibilities. And all the while, my eyes are on Jesus. You want to talk about distracted driving? While I'm driving down the road in my car, my eyes are on Jesus. While I'm watching my TV and the grips of Satan himself are coming out like little blips of invisible 
sin, trying to grab my children. I am there visually watching Jesus to make sure they don't see sex on TV. They don't listen to foul language on TV. Not because they don't know what sex is. I'll teach them that. Not because they don't know what foul language is. I'll make sure that they know what it is so that they can avoid the use of it and prosper in the use of proper language. Absolutely. Because you think the gates of Hades aren't trying. Well, if the gates of Hades weren't trying, Jesus wouldn't have, wouldn't have had to say, we will, let me clarify that, those who have joy in the Lord, those who are ruthless against the Lord's enemies, and those who are obedient to do what the Lord called them to do, he would not have said, we will have our victory over the gates of Hades. If they weren't still trying, they're still trying. And every time, every time, they gain an inch. They demonstrate the great and glorious victories of God that will come in the future. For today, as we run roughshod over enemies of God, we are defeating those who remain from yesterday. And so tomorrow, as we run roughshod over the enemies of God, we will be defeating those who remain from today. You want it all right? You can't have it. Why? Because great victories of God in the future depend upon them persisting today. Their songs have been sung and people are still flocking to them now. Oh, I want to be the most beautiful person in my class. Mommy, can you please buy me X? I want to be the proudest and strongest person in my neighborhood. I've got to have a membership to X. My sexual needs need to be satisfied. I've got to go on the internet and look at X. All of that is just the enemy singing the songs of the of the enemies that still persist and are currently growing large in our society and sometimes large in our homes. But they guarantee this, the bigger they get, the more glory God will get when he conquers them once and for all. Some years ago, and I'll close with this illustration, we lived in Lansing, Michigan, just south, actually, in Mason, Michigan, just south of Lansing. And they put a new TV station on TV. <coughs> I think it was Channel 48, but I'm not positive about that. And during the day, it was old westerns and stuff, and I kind of liked it. You know, I like old shows. They tend to teach old values, and old values oftentimes are closer to godly values. Not always, and sometimes they stumbled on them, but oftentimes it's true. But at 9 o'clock p.m. at night, this channel basically became pornography. It was full of violence and nudity and actual sexual behavior. Now, this is public TV. You can get it on antenna. And you're going, now that's not right. That's against the law. The FCC should stop that, and they should have. But for nine months, this program was on, this channel was on the air at 9 p.m. at night because it came on after the, what they call you know prime time, after those hours when children are supposed to be in bed, whatever. They got away with it for nine months, showing nudity, violence, tons of blood and gore on TV. Now, I only ever saw snippets of it because would flip through, bump a channel or whatever, and then eventually I blocked it on the, we only had an antenna, we didn't have cable, so I blocked it on the program or on the TV, so we, it could never come into our house. And then about nine months later, the FCC, the few guys that are left working there, got up on their uh, feet and did away with that channel. I knew they would get there eventually. I knew that people were complaining about it. God understands the same thing. Listen, God is able to give you the good gifts of tomorrow. He is able to bring you home, have a little faith for crying out loud, and be ruthless against the enemies of today. 
But we get distracted, tempted, and whatever, and instead of being ruthless against the enemies of today, we allow them. You know what happens if the big guy grows big enough to take you down and you don't do anything about it? He's coming against you and you're running and hiding and ducking. Well, all the while you're doing that, you're not doing what God would have you to do. You're just barely surviving. And that is not what we were given to. No, no, no. We are victorious in Christ. So let's get busy today defeating the enemies of today in the strength that God gives us. That begins by you saying, I believe it. I understand it. I get it. Jesus died on the cross. That really settles it. It's done. I'm saved. I believe that. And I'm living for Jesus. And then you're being obedient. And you will, in stride of your obedience, as you're doing what it is that God would have you to do, you will take out this, that, and the other thing that will rise itself up. And sometimes they will flock like huge groups of things. And you'll be on the side of the, on the, side of the road with your car broken down while you're sick with the flu, going, what on earth is happening to me today? I should just blow my brains out while I'm sitting in this car. Because you're feeling like it's all coming at you at once. And what you got to do is say, no, I am here as a servant of the Lord. Not this nor that nor that can take me down. I'm going to run. I'm just going to call. I'll get the car taken care of. I'll get home. I'll get to bed. I'll get some chicken noodle soup. I'll do what I got to do. And tomorrow is another day. And that great victory then will be the fact that you overcame them when they all came against you. Live today for Jesus. For the songs of the enemy have already been sung and many of them have already been repurposed to give glory to our God. And that will be happening until the final bell tolls and Jesus comes again and it's done. And if you don't believe that, if you can't look to the great victories of the future, then I question whether you have the great victory of the past. It's not my place to say you don't, but I'm asking you today to believe in Jesus. And I'm asking you to trust him with your salvation. And I'm asking you to live today like you trust him with your salvation and beat down with absolute ruthlessness the enemies of our Lord, the demons, evil spirits, trials, temptations, tribulations, and difficulties that you face. And keep your eyes all the while focused on Jesus, all the while doing it just exactly, not because I'm mad, not because I'm vengeful, not because it's just, but because it's Jesus has told me to do this, and this is in the way. And so my obedience to Jesus takes me over top of Satan or over top of that demon, over top of that temptation. And I will go right over top of it. And it will be nothing more than a speed bump to me because my eyes are on Jesus all the while. And then finally I say to you, have great joy. And I think this is the key. That we remember that every little thing that's currently going wrong if you're following Jesus, every little thing that's currently going wrong, if you're just being obedient, every little thing as you're following Jesus, that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and pretty soon it looks like it's out of control and you can't handle it, he'll handle it. He'll handle it. And if it takes your life, you'll go straight to heaven. And if it doesn't, the very next day, you'll proclaim and say, look at what God did and he'll get the glory. Where is the ruthlessness? Well, it better start showing up today. Not when Jesus comes. That'd probably be too late. He'll have his own ruthlessness. He and his angels will be harvesting. It'll be a thing. It ain't going to be pretty for those who are not listening. The ruthlessness is today where we defeat the enemies of the Lord. Demons, evil spirits, trials, temptations, tribulations, all of it. And we defeat it in joy. Let's pray together and then we'll have a song of invitation.